Well, welcome everyone. Uh, at least it's still relatively cool in here, although I think the temperature is rapidly increasing outside. Uh, so we're continuing on in our Kingdom series, and we're up to part two, which is Seek the King and His Kingdom Values. And lately I've had a little bit of an anxiety, or a, I guess a worry, as I look around churchdom, and I look around people of my generation, or people that are older than me, um, I think of, often think of, you know, and then think of all the troubles in the world and so forth, so forth. I often think of Jesus' word that in the end times, the love of many would grow cold. And I guess my anxiety is sort of twofold. One is to do with myself, because I look ahead and I can see that with all the different things that are out there, it might be fear, it might be troubles, it might just be you know, consumerism, it might just be JB Hi-Fi, it, it might just be all these things that could make my love grow really cold for the Lord and then would make it grow cold for you as well. Um, and then I think about all of you and I guess I'm anxious as well that, you know, your love might grow cold. Uh, and, you know, you, when you get to 45 and some of you guys are obviously and ladies are older than me, you get to be old enough to see people come and go in the kingdom. You get to see people come and go in churchdom and, and sometimes it just surprises you, surprises you who will come and who will then go. Um, Equally, in the reverse, and then the encouragement is equally surprising as who comes in. So as I've gone through this, seek the king and his kingdom values, I guess I just really want us to realize that as disciples of Jesus, that word disciple just simply in English means learner. It just means learner. And I just wonder to myself, will Adrian Park stay a learner his whole life? Will he have the kingdom L plates on his whole life? Like, Will he be open and humble uh, to the learning, to the teaching that God wants to bring. And will all of you, my church brothers and sisters, remain learners with the L plates on, disciples of Jesus? You know, we, our minds get so congested with so many different things and so many different contaminants can come in and make our love grow cold. So this whole kingdom series, particularly placed as it is, as I feel the Lord has brought us to, it's towards the end of the year, 2016. 2017 is drawing near rapidly and it's just a great time at the end of the year as a new year begins to really reassess where we're at with the Lord to be ready to to learn from him and so that's why when we got to Revelation and we looked just a little bit ahead we'd gone through the churches in Revelation we looked at Revelation 5 and we came across this song of the elders the song of the 24 elders and in part it says you have made them to be a kingdom and priest to serve our God and they will reign on earth. You have made them to be a kingdom and priest to serve our God and they will reign on earth. And so we really wanted to have a little bit of a think and a little bit of a hover over this idea of the kingdom again because you will see it all the way through the Bible. It was even mentioned before uh, by Cole Melchizedek. You know, you'll see this binding theme. It's one of probably the few themes in the Bible that is able to bind everything together so well, so coherently. And so we came across this verse as well last week, which was seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, which we've made it now our memory verse. You know, Jesus in Matthew 6 says, don't worry about you know, what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or what you're going to wear for the, the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need, you realize your father knows that you are needy people. He knows that. And then he says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. And over and over again, you see, the kingdom being brought forward by Jesus. In fact, everything that Jesus did was enfleshing the kingdom. You want to know what the kingdom looks like? Just study Jesus' life in the Gospels. Everything he preached in one way or another 
was ad, uh, announcing the kingdom or showing what the kingdom was like or showing what the values were. And so when we look at, you know, seek first the kingdom and you have made them to be a kingdom of priests and they will rule forever, it's easy to go on our everyday jobs, and I don't think I've got everyone up there this time because we've got a few visitors, um, but our everyday jobs, well, what does that have to do with all these things? Being a teacher or an engineer or a psychologist or a musician or a doctor, et cetera, et cetera. What are these grand kingdom things? Because let's be frank, when we're a little bit bored at work or at home or just wearied, uh, this, the kingdom concept seems far away, doesn't it? Or is it just me? It's just me. Oh, well, I can stop preaching. <laughs> no. Um, so, so when we see these grand things, I don't ever want you to... like The gospel is not a complex thing. You don't need a scholar to teach you the gospel. You could get a scholar to plumb the depths and keep going and going and going. But for you to know the gospel and know how to live the gospel and be a kingdom person in your workplace, it's a relatively simple thing. I don't think God intended it for it to, for it to be hard. Anyway, so we wanted to come back to that. And last week we sort of had a look at, well, how does it all work out, this idea of being a kingdom person? How does it all work out in your everyday workplace, job site, you know, in the cabin, in, at the base, uh, wherever you happen to work, in theatre. Well, how does it all work out? And so we cheated a bit. We went to the beginning of the Bible. We went to the end of the Bible. And lo and behold, what did we find? We found that in the beginning, there was kingdom fullness. The king reigned with his people. There was new heavens and new earth, literally. And humanity was told to rule the earth and to subdue it. And when we get to the end, as we just saw in Revelation 5, we're told again that humanity rules with God. God is there in fullness. The kingdom has come in fullness. So the beginning and the end bracket a whole bunch of stuff in between. But it's all intending to come to that, to come to God's kingdom fullness. And then we saw that there were these verses where God says to his people in the garden, there's just two of them at that time. Their names are Adam and Eve. He says, be fruitful, multiply. And we saw that they were built in his image. And remember, I gave you that little uh, descriptor of where that word comes from, where an image, where a statue would be built of a king on his boundary and the statue would show uh, the king's authority and uh, over that and his characteristics and so forth over that territory. So we were to be a Margot Day. We were to be his image. And if we were to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth in a just and kind and sustainable way, then we were to be his image bearers. So you think about all the things that would be required to be fruitful and multiply. All the planning, all the civil engineering, uh, all the things just about there that you can see eventually. And so we saw that, you know, does your work count right now in God's kingdom? And what do we say? Absolutely. In fact, God would be intending that you be a great kingdom engineer. You'd be a great kingdom pilot. You'd be a great kingdom nurse. Whatever you do, whether it's in the theatre or whether it's in the car on the way to school, whether it's in the change room, whether it's in the kitchen, whether it's in, at the job site, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. It counts. Your work counts. And I encourage you, if you didn't hear that sermon, to go back and have a look at that. And then all the bit in between, we had the fall. We had the, the, the atrocity of the fall, the horror of the fall, 
the appalling nature of the fall where man is separated from God, humanity is separated, and we just see death and destruction. And then all we see all the way through this kingdom theme of God is going to bring a king and he's going to restore, he's going to redeem. He doesn't choose the easy path. The easy path that perhaps Allah would choose would be, you're gone, you're done. That's it. God chooses the incredibly complicated, costly path of letting humanity go on, but redeeming and restoring them. That is our God. That's why we're gathered here today and in our simple way, in a beautiful way. Thank you, Sarah and Gabe. We sing to him. We sing hero songs about how he did that. All the way through to the cross and then to the grave, redeeming, sacrificing himself so that our sins, our sins that separate us, our sins that make us run after idols, run after things that are lesser than God. Jesus goes and onto the cross and he, and he, I had this thought this morning when I was running. Often we think the cross was holding up Jesus, right? But we all believe, don't we, that Jesus went there willingly, right? And we all believe that as he said, if he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and even in the garden, he says to his disciples, I can call down legions of angels right now and sort this out. I had, a, I had this thought and I want to share it with you. He was not actually held there by the cross. He was literally holding the cross and all of the like planet Earth, the whole existence together, in a sense, metaphorically. Do you know, do you know what I'm saying? Because he's the king of kings. He could have got down off that cross. He didn't even have to go there. No, 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 the cross wasn't holding him up. He was holding the cross and holding the whole of earth and in a very real way showing us that he loves his earth and he's going to get this kingdom thing done. He's going to get it done. And so the beginning of you, the goal of you was to to be the same in your workplace, not not hopefully having to be crucified, but definitely being self-sacrificial and living out that dynamic in his power. And so today, like I said, go back and have a look at that one. But today, I just wanted to bring to you well, just this question. What would Jesus' kingdom righteousness look like? What would it look like at the job site? What would it look like in the theatre, you know, in all the different places where we work? Uh, what would it look like? And remember, we had this sorghum field. And I just want, I want you, if you've never done this before, to see things a bit differently. So... You know, you look at this sorghum field, which I drive past, and I shared this with you again, and I just want to apply it again in a slightly different way. You stand there, and you look in that direction, and maybe that represents your workplace and all your work or the home stuff that you do and the changing of the nappies and so forth, and you look at it and you go, you know what, it just doesn't seem to make much sense. It doesn't seem to have much order. And, but I want you to do what I did in this field, is just simply turn 90 degrees, and what do you see? You see order. You see it's going somewhere. You see that it actually does count for something. You see that there's a plan there. There's a plan there. And so I really want you just to bear with me, put the L plates on, and just see your workplace differently. Just ask God to not just see it with your head, but feel it with your heart so that it might flow out into service for him, worthy service for him. Not just, oh, that's work. I've got to get through to uh, Saturday, Sunday. And oh no, it's Sunday and looking down the barrel of Monday. No, no, no. Wouldn't it be great if our hearts were so beating in rhythm with the king that we would want to be at work tomorrow? And he can do that because he's powerful. And by the way, if, if at any time in this sermon you think I'm telling you to do something and not be something, then you're getting it wrong and maybe I need to clarify a bit more and hopefully you'll see what I mean by the end. But as we go through what Jesus' kingdom righteousness looks like, I want you to understand that I'm asking you to be something. And if I'm asking you to be something, guess what? You are helpless and needy and poor in spirit. Because if I'm asking you to be something that is beyond yourself, 
You need someone that's beyond yourself to be that. It's a very simple truth. But we will insist on trying to do things, 10-step plans, etc., etc., and they may all have um, value. But if I'm asking you to be something, I'm asking you to be poor and needy and humble. So I don't want you to go away like, and the reason I'm saying this is had some feedback. One of the guys I love in the church, and he said, you know, I really loved your sermon last week, but I'm just tired and I'm weary. And I get that. I'm tired and weary too. So I want you to understand that when the word says he has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who has called us according to his great and precious promises so that we might participate in the divine nature, I want us to understand that that's, that's real. And I'm going to ask a question at the end again when I finish off, which will be, is God present in your workplace? Is he present when you change nappies? Is he present when you clean up the floor again and again? Is he present at the job site? Is he present as you drive? And if he is present there, why? Why is he present there? Is it just to make you feel comfortable? Of course he loves you. But is that all there is? So that's what I want to get to. So what would Jesus' kingdom righteousness look like in all these various places? Let's turn, if you would, just with Matthew 5. I'm going to probably spend two sermons on this, not one, because it's so important. I know they're very familiar passages. They're the Beatitudes. Becky got to teach some of these in school earlier on and she did a great little PowerPoint. And it was really good. Maybe I could have just used her PowerPoint. Um, Matthew 5, 1 to 16. I'll give you the context here shortly, but let's just, let's just read along together. Now when he, so it's Jesus, saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down and his disciples came to him. So imagine his disciples have come to him. Jesus has seen all the crowds uh, and his disciples are coming to him. He's teaching his disciples, okay? And he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Amen. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. I'm just smiling because I just think this is such beautiful truth especially if Jesus intends that it be lived out. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice, be glad, because great is your reward in heaven in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. Willowburn, my brothers and sisters, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. If you're a disciple, if you're a learner of Jesus, you're a city on a hill that can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the beauty of the Beatitudes. I pray, Lord, as we just spend a little bit of time, oh, Lord, teach us. Soften our hearts. Make us to be your kingdom people. Because we know that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ is coming again. 
And we'd be ready. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's really important to understand the context of the Beatitudes. Very famous passage, famous Sermon on the Mount kind of stuff. And I encourage you to have a bit of a look yourself this week into Matthew 1 through 4. But in Matthew 1, you'll see Jesus' family tree and it traces out his kingdom lineage all the way back, um, including David, Abraham and so forth. Then we see the Christmas story, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Then in Matthew 2, the Magi or the three, we don't know if they're three, the, the wise men as they're known. We see Jesus' family threatened and escaping to Egypt, returning to Israel and living in Nazareth. In Matthew 3, we see John the Baptist come. And do you know what he preaches? Do you know what his first sermon is? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. So in burning in John's heart is this repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Then we see Matthew 4, uh, sorry, then we see Jesus uh, baptized and the rest of Matthew 3 there. Matthew 4, Jesus tempted, the, the devil thwarted. Jesus then begins to preach. Does he, do you know what he preaches? Help me out. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is, uh, is at hand. Some people have tried to delineate between heaven and God. I've got a pretty much majority of scholars believe kingdom and heaven and kingdom of God is exactly the same thing. They believe that Matthew was probably trying to be respectful towards Jewish people who he aimed his gospel at in order not to offend. He didn't want to use God or, um, because that was the sacred, sacred tetragrammaton. You can read about that, Google that later. Um, anyway, so when I use kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, I just use them interchangeably. And then we get to Matthew 5. So um, supernatural inspiration for Matthew demands that he has Matthew 1 through 4, talks about Jesus coming into the world, and then straight into repent, the kingdom of heaven is, is at hand, and then the Beatitudes. So I really want you to listen to this. I know it's hot. Bear with me. Okay? Bear with me. It is so... Uh, it's so burning in Jesus' heart uh, and so burning in the Holy Spirit's heart as he inspires Matthew to, to, to write down the, the heroics of Jesus that the very first thing he puts down is the Sermon on the Mount and the very first thing that you hear apart from repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand is the Beatitudes. And so when I say what does the kingdom look like, the Lord has really made it simple for us. He has given us the Beatitudes and shown us what the kingdom values look like, what the kingdom heart state of his people, of his followers, of his learners, of his disciples, what that will look like. And there are many, this word blessed, uh, in the original Latin Vulgate, they had this word betus, which is where we get the Beatitudes from. And most people have seen that as, you know, blessed or happy, but more modern scholars have noted that this actually, it actually means more than just happy or blessed, and it's almost a term of congratulations. It's almost like, congratulations, you're blessed, you should be happy, as he says this to his disciples. And, you know, it's a deep word. But it's, it's a really cool word, okay? And it's a really cool state to be in when Jesus says himself, blessed are you. Blessed are you. And so what I want us to do is just to go through some of these. We're not going to go through all of them because we won't have time. I'm just going to go through three or four of them. And I just want us to ask is, what would Jesus' beatitudes look like? Nicole, what would these look like in theatre? Gabby, what would these look like as you are fighting for justice? Joe, when you are creating beautiful artworks, what would Jesus' Beatitudes look like? When Andrew's driving out to do his agronomy and things like that, talking to farmers, what would Jesus' Beatitudes look like? What would they look like? I could go through everyone in the church, in the cockpit of a black hole. What do they look like? Um, 
Not only what do they look like, what would happen if they were lived there? At home, or even in the church. And so I just want us to get a little bit of a glimpse of that. And the way I want to do it is I want to flip it on its head a little bit. And I'm using this play on words, which is de-attitudes. Instead of be-attitudes, de-attitudes, de-attitudes, as in the attitude isn't there. Okay? Roger's got a quizzical look. He's wondering where I'm going. I'm wondering too. No, I'm not. Uh, I know where I'm going. Um, and the reason I want to do this is because sometimes the absence of something makes, uh, makes that thing that is gone really, really obvious. And perhaps you'll recognise some of these situations, okay, as we go first through the first uh, four. There's eight of them all together, and we may do the rest later on. So let's start with the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What would that look like in the business, in the office, in the work site, in the kitchen? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is not an arbitrary poor in spirit. It's not just anyone who's poor in spirit. Who's he talking to? Do you remember? Can you help me? His disciples. So he's talking to his disciples, but guess what? Everyone else, the crowds, are actually listening in. Because even though it says there that Jesus sat down and taught his disciples, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we are told this. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. So you've got the disciples sitting there listening, close in, the inner circle, and then you've got all the crowds around that are hearing all this as well. And that's really important to understand because the world is literally looking in at Jesus and his disciples and seeing the attitudes of the kingdom and seeing as he teaches them. What a moment. I wish I had a time machine. So we could go back and sit and listen, feel the dust of that Judean countryside on my, on my feet. See Jesus in his humanity teaching. How cool would that be? So the world's kind of looking in and uh, the disciples are learning. And Jesus is saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And a lot of scholars have called this the pious poor, Okay. And the idea here is not that you're just poor as in financially, although that can create within your heart and will create within your heart a situation of being needy, but it literally means that you are dependent and needy on someone else. And the context here means that you are dependent and needy upon God. So if you want to get an idea of what it means to be dependent and needy and poor in spirit, I encourage you over Christmas to read the Psalms. And maybe on Facebook, share every time you see David or one of the other Psalmists praying in desperation to God for him to do something. That is someone who is poor and needy, blessed are the poor in spirit. Okay. For example, Psalm 51, David says this, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. That's what it means to be dependent and needy. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So if we were to look at the de-attitude, Unblessed, unblessed, you know, heading for pain, both to yourself and to your friends and to your family and to your co-workers, heading for pain if it is proud in spirit. If you are proud in spirit, you are unblessed. You will not be happy in the long run. And I don't even need to spend much time on this because I just ask you, if hardship arises in your workplace and you are proud in spirit, what will you do? Will you take it as perhaps God's will that he wants you now to demonstrate what it looks like when a kingdom person is under pressure? 
or will you run away? Or will you seek to protect yourself? If self-interest arises, you see the opportunity for a promotion. And you know what? Maybe you're really struggling with finances, but it means you're going to have to step on someone to do it. Will you answer the question, if you are proud in spirit, what will you do? Or at home? I mean, sometimes I guess even as we were kids growing up, the proud in the spirit, I'm right, and I'll fight you for it. Imagine in the church community, if you're proud in spirit, so many theological arguments, and really at the heart of it, someone's proud in spirit or everyone's proud in spirit, and they will be proven right no matter what. Unblessed are the proud in spirit. Unblessed. And again, I'm not going like, to spend a whole bunch of time. I want you to ask, have you ever seen that yourself? You probably have. And yet Jesus is saying, you are what? The salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Are you? Can I ask you that? Are you? Are we as a church, the salt of the earth, the light of the world, or are we asleep? You know, Jesus isn't just saying, we, we just quote salt of the earth, light of the world. The very next bit says, if the salt loses its saltiness, and the whole point is, people try to work out how salt can lose its saltiness chemically. Like, it's a metaphor, let it go. Jesus is simply saying, it's, it's ridiculous that people of the kingdom who are salty can lose their saltiness. That's what he's saying there. Okay? And maybe if we have, then he's going to bring us back on, you know, and, and we've got to soften our hearts and repent and so forth. But are we the salt of the earth? Are we the light of the world? The world so desperately needs it. And the salt of the earth, light of the world, is straight after the Beatitudes. If these Beatitudes are who we are, who we be, who we be, then in the, in the work situation, in the home situation, salty, well lit. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Let's move on to the next one. What, what, would, what does that look like? Blessed are what someone's crying on the job site all the time. You know, pass me the Kleenex. Someone's like just sobbing there. It's like, oh, one of those criers again. What do you do? You don't know whether to hug them or say something. Like, <laughs> some of you have been there maybe. But, but think about this. Like, this is Jesus speaking. This is pretty important. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Well, again, what does it mean perhaps when, uh, when they're missing? Well, let's think about Jesus for a minute. I, I really like to go, okay, could spend a lot of time showing you all these different commentaries on what people think blessed are the mourn. But let's look at Jesus. Let's do something here because some of you are looking a bit sleepy. Give me an example when, when Jesus mourns. What is he mourning over? What was that, Chris? Lazarus, his best friend. It's such a poignant scene. His best friend is in the tomb. or well, not best friend, but a good friend. He's in the tomb and, and he's dead and Jesus just, just cries. He grieves. And if you look at the, the Greek there, it's like this deep uh, turbulence in his soul. He's so upset. And go back to, I think it was uh, Ben's sermon, and listen to all the reasons why sin, death, all just sort of culminating in this picture of his friend in the tomb for three days. And yet Jesus is going to crack open that tomb as a little bit of a kind of movie trailer of what's going to come later on in the future. But he mourns over sin and death. Wow. In the workplace, if we were to mourn over the effects of sin rather than just get angry at people, what a different place that would be. When else did he mourn? Nicole, in the garden, yeah, and like he was fighting like some sort of spiritual battle. He was, he was sweating blood like it's a biochemical thing that was happening. Um, again, not wanting to disappoint his father, 
wanting to save the world, like mourning over the world, mourning over the fact that he was going to have to endure such hardship. Any others? Yeah, can you give me an example from the scriptures? Good, yeah, so mourning over Jerusalem. So he's walking towards Jerusalem and he begins to weep. And he knows that judgment is coming. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you like a hen gathers its chicks. That's what Jesus was mourning over. You know, those, those guys have been warned so many times and yet they just persisted in the coldness of heart, in the hardness of heart. I just pray that we wouldn't do that because eventually judgment does come and yet Jesus isn't happy about it. He mourns. If only we, you know, you know when we see someone doing something and, and we go, oh, pff, how could they do that? What if we were like Jesus and we just mourned because we can see that if that keeps going and that trajectory continues, that they are headed for judgment. If we were just, oh, maybe then our, our silly, cliched, glib Christian sayings would actually engage people, wouldn't they? Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed. For they will be comforted. Now, one day Jesus says, that every tear will be wiped away. In the context of being a learner, of being a disciple, of being a follower of Jesus, one day, every tear wiped away. What a beautiful thing. You will be comforted. You might have to grieve now, but you will be comforted. You know, again, I could spend a whole bunch of time on the D attitude. Unblessed are those who don't care. Unblessed are those who don't care. Jesus cared. God cared so much. This much on the cross. You know, I often see at work when there's injustice, a lot of guys go, you know what, I hate what's going on here. Uh, my workplace at the moment is great, by the way. Other workplaces I've been in, just, let's just put the blinkers on. Let's just come to work and put the blinkers on. And what happens then? The injustice just continues and it just continues. Same, same in the church. So many churches, I believe, have folded and split because when there have been injustices, they haven't been dealt with. It's, oh, no, no, no. I've just, I just got to keep supporting this guy or whatever. And like, of course we should support our leaders. I'm one of them. So preaching myself out of a job maybe or preaching myself into trouble. But you know what I'm saying? So many times church folk will just sit in the pews and go, blinkers on, blinkers. Why? Because maybe deep down they don't care. And yet Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. We should mourn over the destructive things that happen in church splits. We should mourn over the destructive things that happen in our workplace, our home place, because there isn't that followership of Christ. Unblessed are those who don't care. You should care. We should all care. Are you the salt of the earth? Are you the light of the world? Then you will mourn. This is something you have to be, my brothers and sisters. Does it feel hard? It does, doesn't it? Does it feel impossible? Good. That's where I want you. That's where I want to be right now. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. It's so unfortunate that meek rhymes with weak. But it has nothing to do with weak, nothing at all. In fact, it's the very opposite. Well, not quite the opposite, but it's far, far away. Blessed are the meek, for they'll inherit. Well, what does being meek look like? Does this mean you're a pushover? You just, you know, get kicked in the backside and get kicked around and do whatever, you know, taken advantage of? What was Jesus taken advantage of? Yes, he was. In the near horizon, Jesus was taken advantage of. But in the far horizon of eternity, no way. Things are made right. So straight away, we have to have that attitude that if we're going to get kicked around, God is going to sort it out. We will trust ourselves to one who judges justly. Jesus, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he was cursed, he did not threaten. Instead, he continued to entrust himself to one who judges justly, to his father. So what does meek actually mean? 
like I said, it doesn't mean weak. And I think the best way, as I've explained it before, is think of constrained power. Think of Jesus, who is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He has thermonuclear power, and he walks the Judean countryside, and he does not give those people what they deserve. He does not lash out. He constrains his power for a greater purpose. That is, I think, the best definition of being meek. No lashing out of power, though he could have. No seeking his own rights at that time, but instead trusting himself to one who judges justly. And I would say then that the de-attitude is unblessed are the unrestrained. You might know some of those people. You might have experienced it yourself and that anger rises up. There's such danger there, isn't there? Because what happens, you might be rising up over a just issue, but then this overreaction becomes the issue. And then guess what other people are probably going to do? Over, overreact. Over, over, overreact. And then the issue is gone. You know? Unblessed are the unrestrained, but blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. These disciples, these learners, one day are going to inherit and rule the earth again like we saw last, last week. Again, what happens in the church community? I'll let you answer that one yourself. Are we the salt of the earth, light of the world? Are we? Am I? We'll do this last one and then we'll finish off. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. What does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? So I'm in my, my crew room there and I'm like, hello, hang on, boys. You just keep doing what you do. I'm going to read my Bible now because I'm hungry and thirsty for righteousness. And I shall put these earphones on, which I actually do sometimes, um, because I don't want to hear this talk. Okay? Is that what it is, this sort of pious retreat? I don't think so. I don't think that's what Jesus intends. Matter of fact, if you look at that word righteousness, it is heavily infused with the connotation of justice. And in fact, some Bible versions, newer Bible versions, have actually said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice. So this, this is a big, big kingdom priority for you in your workplace. Justice. Is there justice there? Fair pay, that kind of thing. Is there justice there? Are people getting a fair go? Are you giving, if you're a boss or a manager, are you giving people a fair go? Are you, if you're a fellow co-worker, being a mate, being just in how you speak? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for this justice. You know, think about Jesus again. In the temple courts, he has a hunger and a thirst for justice and he has a hunger and thirst for righteousness. His, his temple's being turned into commerce. It's being turned into JB Hi-Fi. Not quite. But it's being turned into a shop. It wasn't meant to be a shop. It was meant to be a place of prayer, is what he said. And so Jesus, you see that righteous anger well up. Everything's in balance, though. It's not unrestrained. It might look like that, but if you think about it, he took a long time to make that whip. He was thinking about it. It wasn't unrestrained. And yet at the same time, he cared. You know, Jesus oftentimes was offensive and provocative to the Pharisees who were so caught up in their hypocrisy that he was hungry and thirsty for justice for his people, that he confronted them. And, you know, for three years he served and he loved and he taught and he healed and he was himself insulted. Why? Because he was hungry and thirsty for justice, for righteousness to come. It's, of course, you need to be in your Bible and, of course, you need to be hungry and thirsty for God's word. But then there's also this, well, hunger and thirst to see it uh, enfleshed in your place of work, in your, in your home and so forth. And unblessed, I would say, the de-attitude then is unblessed are those hungry and thirsty for pleasures alone. And you know what? I'm just going to explain this with a picture. Does anyone know what this picture is? 
There's many of them on the internet. Just Google 2004 tsunami sun baking or sun bathing. You'll see them everywhere. Now, there is nothing wrong with going to the beach and, and resting. God has intended that. We would rest and stuff. But if our pleasures are our end state, and if our pleasures would cause us to completely disregard the suffering that's right next to us. Now, this is very challenging, my brothers and sisters, because you think about, well, first of all, put yourself there. Do the substitution test. Maybe, maybe you do the same thing. I don't know. Maybe you wouldn't. Maybe you'd be helping clean up. Um, but just, let's just move that debris and that suffering from them sunbathing, and let's move it, I don't know, a half a continent away. What difference does it make to God? Now, what, what difference does it make to God? And I don't want to condemn because I feel the weight of this myself, right? But, you know, when we're asked to give to Pakistan, you know, if that was right there, if it was right next to us, would we keep sunbathing? Or if we're asked to pray and to give to Papua New Guinea uh, where there's suffering and drugs and young men just killing themselves with marijuana, you know, like, blessed, blessed are those who care. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, hunger and thirst for justice. But unblessed are those who have made seeking pleasures their everything. Unblessed are those. And I know this is really heavy, but please don't just let it wash over or justify or rationalise. Please just take it away and think about it. Salt of the earth, light of the world. Do you care like he cared? Will we care? You know, at the start of the year, we asked, do you want to go deeper? Do you want to trust more deeply? Do you want to hope more deeply? Do you want to love more deeply? The world so needs, you to see, no, so needs to see you do that. Do you want to be genuinely salt and light? Do you, want to live, do you want to live these kingdom values? Do you want to enflesh these kingdom values so that people will look in at you and go, wow, that's what it looks like. That's what the kingdom looks like. They may well hate you for it. That's why the last one is blessed are those, or blessed are those who are persecuted. You know, as we get to the end of 2016 and get into 2017, this will be my last sermon for this year, will you, will you do something, okay? Just something very simple. And we, you've seen it before. Will you live by the Spirit? Because before I said, I don't want you to do stuff. I don't want you to go away feeling all guilty. But I want you to go away feeling convicted. And if you want to be the kingdom, like Revelation 5 says, then there is only one possible way. That is to humble ourselves and to ask and to plead and to keep on asking that the Lord by his spirit will make us that. That he will change and modify and transform our hearts so that we will be these things. That out of the heart, our hands and feet will just be working. And you know, Next year, I've got no doubt, there will be needs that will arise. I've got no doubt that there will be requirements over and over again for us to, to mourn, to be poor in spirit, to be meek, to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And you cannot, you will not, accept by the Spirit. And I gave this little thing, triple O. Will you orientate on him and on his will and on his word? Will you open up to being a learner, to changing? And will you obey? Will you obey? when God calls you? And would you just move in that Pentecost power and maybe go back and have a listen to what that means on the, the Holy Spirit series? But will you orientate, open up, obey, triple O it? And I asked at the start, is God present 
in your workplace, at your home place? Is he present in the world today? And if so, why? Why is, why is he there? You know, when you're bored, frustrated, tired, this is a really good question is to ask, am, is God here right now? And why is he here? And what I want to say to you is he is here in the workplace, even in this church right now. He's, he's there for the same reasons as the first sermon. What was the first sermon again? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You now get to live that. Someone, someone in your workplace can go and see the kingdom at hand. They can see you. They can see you there. How cool is that? Like that's, that's so beautiful that he would in, invite us into his kingdom work. Not only invite us into the kingdom, I'm sure you've heard that phrase before, to be the kingdom, as it says in Revelation 5, 10. Yes, not in its fullness, but at least there's a little movie trailer of how it could be in the future when these values, these beatitudes are lived out. So next time in the new year, we'll go through the last four. And I'll just finish with this verse as we roll into communion, all these verses. Also a part of the Sermon on the Mount. It's almost as though Jesus knew that there would be people who would study these words, which is good. People who would argue over these words, which is maybe necessary sometimes. People who would write great big blogs and, and write, you know, record podcasts and write textbooks. It's almost as though he knew that. He almost knew that the greatest temptation for his people that they would just talk about this stuff. So he, he gave us this beautiful parable. It goes like this. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, these words of the kingdom, and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. The difference between the man with a house on the rock and a man with a house on the sand is pretty much what they did and didn't do. Your heart, your beatitudes will always flow out. If they don't, you need to come back to the Lord, you need to orientate and you need to repent and you need to ask God to change your heart. And I want to tell you this, this isn't something you need to wait for when I'm sanctified enough in 10 years. No, you have the full power of the Holy Spirit available to you right now. It can transform a dodgy fisherman into a powerful preacher, just like Peter. So I just pray as we come to communion now, and sorry, just to remember the 101. I won't keep sending them out via text, but I'll put them on Facebook. But if you want those kingdom verses to keep coming your way, just ask me, come and talk to me. We're trying to do one kingdom verse a day and just think about it for a minute a day over the next 100 days. I think we're up to five or six today. Um, I just ask that you do that. I ask that you consider maybe just catching up with other people to pray about this. And as we come into communion and as we share communion together, I just want to ask this very simple question. Was Jesus a man of his word? So was Jesus authentic? Was he genuine? Like, like, like was he consistent? Did he have integrity? Well, you're all the choir, so of course you're going to say yes. But what I mean by that is, did he live what he preached? Was he poor in spirit? Man, like he had the riches of kingdom and he, of the kingdom in heaven and he came to earth and he walked with us. You know, Philippians says that he made himself nothing, that he even became obedient to death on a cross. That's poor in spirit. Did he mourn? Well, we already said that he mourned. But the ultimate mourning, I'm so glad Nicole brought it up, was in the garden as he went to the cross. 
Was he meek? Absolutely. He could have called down those angels, but he didn't. He constrained that power so that a greater goal would be achieved, the goal of demonstrating his love to the whole world. And did he hunger and thirst for righteousness? Absolutely. And that's why we remember him in communion. We remember him because he was poor in spirit. He mourned. He was meek. He hungered and thirsted for justice. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and offered it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my father's kingdom. 